when I first started doing Getting Better Acquainted, I hadn't come across the concept of a content note or a trigger warning. It's really hard to predict what will trigger someone. The things that trigger me are not things that tend to get trigger warnings given for them. And I kind of feel like it's kind of presumptuous to assume what somebody else's trigger is, although I'm absolutely not against the idea of people giving trigger warnings, particularly for the more obvious things which will trigger people. These days, I do try to give content notes at the beginning of my episodes. And so this episode, I'll be talking about childhood trauma, talking about mental health issues, violence against children, sex and sexuality in an unrefined and unreconstructed way. If you're someone who, like me, is triggered by Christmas, and this episode will show you kind of why I get triggered by Christmas, but if you are, you should expect there will be mention of Christmas in this episode. But that's enough preparation work. It's time to start the show properly. Hello and welcome to the 300th episode of Getting Better Acquainted. My name's Dave and I'm the guy that puts this stuff together. I started Getting Better Acquainted back in 2011, so I've been doing the show for six years. I started it after I'd done a different podcast where I didn't like the person that I heard and I wanted to make a show where I liked the person that I heard, at least some of the time. I noticed that I was a different person when I was with different people. And so the only way to really show the full range of who I was, was to have different guests guests rather than the same co-hosts every episode. When I first set up the show I had some objectives for me for what I wanted to do and for how I wanted me to be in the show but primarily I was interested in looking at other people. I didn't realise at that point that the show was going to become an autobiography through conversation where I am in every episode and so there's no way that it can't be about me and clearly some of my thoughts were to represent myself differently to show different sides of me so I guess I did have a suspicion that it would become about me and I must have really known that on some level because the first episode episode one of Getting Better Acquainted which I'm going to revisit today the me back in 2011 and then we'll cut back to the me in 2017 and how I feel about this episode now and the things I said and the way that I said them I say this is Getting Better Acquainted 300, but I've made more than 300 episodes for this series already because I haven't counted live episodes, I haven't uh, counted some of the extras, I haven't counted some of the specials, I haven't counted replayed episodes. And so really, this is more than 300 already. But numbers are arbitrary, the way that we evaluate things are arbitrary, but it's still good to celebrate, to take stock and to look back. And that is what I'm going to be doing today. And I hope you enjoy getting better acquainted with the person I used to be and getting better acquainted with the person that I am now. In my opinion, all memory is subjective and it cannot be trusted. You shouldn't trust my memory. I certainly do not trust my memory. Hello and welcome to episode one of Getting Better Acquainted. My name's Dave. And this show is made by me. I need to get better. Please make me better. 
I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. So I thought I would just explain my reasons for this podcast, my vision for this podcast, where uh, this podcast will take you. Uh, You, the audience, will be getting every week a little bit better acquainted with me, and every week I will be getting a little bit better acquainted with somebody else. Okay, so there are interview shows where famous people interview famous people. This show is where someone who isn't famous, me, uh, interviews non-famous people. Now, acquaintances can mean many things, and I hope that this series will explore all of those things. Uh, sometimes they might be just a person I met one time at a party sometimes they might be my closest friends and we'll have a conversation a conversation about something either something that they want to talk about or something that I think would be interesting to talk about based on my knowledge of them and through those conversations I'll be taking you on a journey a journey in search of truth of the truth of a truth, as many truths as uh, are possible. I think all conversations are a journey. You start in one place and you you finish in another. Because I'm I'm a talker and I talk all the time, but do I talk clearly? Do I express myself in the way that I would like? Do I communicate my thoughts to other people? I'm not sure. And I certainly wonder if I listen to other people properly, if I allow them enough space in the conversation. And really that's what this project will be about, learning to to give my friends and my acquaintances and my family their own space uh, in in our conversation. So today we are going to be getting acquainted with Dave. And this will be the last time that the show will focus on me for quite some time. So uh, I'm making this episode a compilation of some live performances that I recorded in front of audiences. I recorded performances at Spark London events, which is true stories told live in front of an audience. Uh, You can also hear that as a podcast. So you're going to hear two of those, some readings of some personal accounts I've written up and some improvised and edited anecdotes. Hopefully this next hour of me, 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 me uh, will give you some idea of who I, I might be when I'm not in conversation through doing this show I have learned to listen to people better and these days when I come to edit current conversations I often find that I'm talking more than I'd like partly because these days I'm a freelancer so I'm not talking at all in the day and so when I see people I haven't had any human contact and that is part of why I end up talking more than I feel like I should but actually you know in balance I do talk less within the episodes than I used to conversations are a co-created thing and sometimes one person speaks more than others and sometimes speaking more helps to draw out stuff from somebody else and other times speaking more means they don't get to say what they meant to say it's different every time every conversation is different speaking of different my voice sounds different my accent sounds different 
back in 2011. It's more London-based, I guess. I was working in London, so every day I was interacting in public services with people from London, and I've got quite a kind of adaptable, susceptible kind of voice, and it changes in different environments. There's a lot of popping that I would not let get past these days. I mixed the music a little bit louder in the mix than I like and I think you know significantly when you listen to that voice it's very interesting to me that I did not understand for so long that I have anxiety and depression I mean that will come up more as this episode goes on but at this point in my life I did not see myself as somebody with mental health issues even the tone of my voice in that moment because I remember when I recorded this that I was what I would call now in a period of quite deep depression but I wouldn't have seen it that way then weirdly now as I'm recording this I'm also in a period of quite deep depression and yet it doesn't kind of control my voice I can come out of it and be a different persona and that is partly because I named it and because I started to understand it back then I had much less control of myself which is not to say in any way that I'm in control of myself now Speaking of trying to understand myself, the next part of this episode is the second story that I ever told at Spark London. Back then, I was just finding my feet, trying to understand this thing called true storytelling that I didn't really know very much about. But these days, I'm a part of the Spark London team. And for the last four years, I've been hosting the Hackney branch of Spark, which takes place at the Hackney Attic on the second Monday of every month. On top of that, I've trained people in how to tell true stories. I co-produce other storytelling nights. I set up my own variety night that had a big strand of true storytelling within it. And it's no coincidence, I think, that Spark and Getting Better Acquainted both entered my life at around the same time. Uh, hi, my name's Dave. Um, I've done a Spark before. It was a really, really unhappy story. And I thought I'd take this opportunity to tell a nice one. Um, so... <laughs> It's not going to start nice, though. I hate Valentine's Day. I really hate the concept of it. It's just so commercial and unpleasant. Uh, this is the story about how I uh, accidentally managed to have my anniversary on Valentine's Day, which is another reason to hate it. You can't get a table. Um, but so uh, last Valentine's Day was my 10-year anniversary uh, with my girlfriend, Jen, uh, and we met at university and um, we met the first day of university, actually. Um, it was for the first lecture that we both had, which was in creative writing. And it was at 9.30 in the morning on a Monday. Um, and I was, I'd had a shit time at school. And uh, I wanted to reinvent myself as myself, you know. So uh, I had my hat on, which is a thing I do. And I had a newspaper, unfortunately, the Guardian newspaper, uh, I don't read anymore, but <laughs> I had it there, nice and big and wide. And I was sitting down in front of where we were supposed to have our... It was a seminar, not a lecture, seminar group, and uh, reading the newspaper. And Jen 
was trying to make some contact with the other human beings around her, and she said, "So, um, uh, it's it's uh, it's uh, early in early in the morning, isn't it? <laughs> uh, something like that." And I uh, put my head up over the newspaper and said. Um, I think it's fantastic to be starting the week at 9.30 with writing. Because writing is my life. <laughs> writing is my passion. Uh, and then, whoop, back down behind the paper. <laughs> so obviously she thought I was a total twat. Uh, <laughs> some might say her first impressions were correct. But uh, anyway, so I'm, I, have, I have created writing with her for a while and uh, I sort of, get interested in her and her writing and her mind and all that stuff and her body. I'm not <laughs> some weirdo. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I went out clubbing with some people and I happened to see her at a club and I sort of danced at her, you know, <laughs> like you do, for a long time. And I think because she wanted me to stop dancing at her, she gave me her phone number, which I asked for. Uh, and I was a bit confused what, about what had happened. I had this phone number. Um, so I went home and I, 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 I couldn't sleep and I was, you know, very excited about having this phone number. Uh, so I phoned her up at 9.30 the next morning. <laughs> 9.30 seems to be an unfortunately re- reoccurring feature in the story. Find her up at 9.30 in the morning. She was so confused, having been woken up uh, by this phone call, that she sort of, half asleep, <laughs> agreed to go out with me. Um, so we had our first date, and uh, something weird had happened to me between dancing at her in a club and uh, going on this date. For the first and only, probably, time in my life, uh, two other girls, as well as Jen, were also kind of maybe interested in me. So I was like, oh my God, I have to make a decision between three different women who are all interested in me. <laughs> That's never happened before. <laughs> what do I do? And so we have this date, and Jen says, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm having second thoughts about this date. And I'm like, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, great, fantastic, because I got these other two girls, and I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know whether to pretend to, and, or, you know, to play everybody, and we're dating and all that nonsense, or just come clean. We're, fantastic, we're not going out, brilliant. Do you want to go for a drink? So we went for a drink, and I wasn't all stressy and that, because we weren't going to go out, and we went for a drink in a, uh, a, a bar that was quite far out from the university campus so it was kind of uh romantic and we just talked and I've never talked as long and hard with anybody in my life uh before or since well since as in all the time with her but not with anyone else and uh so at the end of that so we go back and uh, she does you know she still wants to think about it so I say I'll see you some other time then a few days later um I see her in the around the campus and I realize that Valentine's Day is coming up and that might be a quite a good seal the deal thing to do. So I uh, said, do you want to go out next Wednesday? I didn't tell her it was Valentine's Day because I figured she wouldn't know. And then uh, I'd trick her into it. So <laughs> I did. I, it was successful. And uh, I went out with her. And she, she was uh, happy to be going out with me, but annoyed that it was Valentine's Day and that I tricked her. And I, I, I wrote her, made her a card with a poem in. I was so intense. <laughs> she used to say, stop looking at me. Just to stop looking at me for a bit. Um, anyway, uh, so I gave her this card. I fell down the stairs as I was giving it to her. And uh, she sort of reads it. And it was probably a pretty bad poem, but she stayed with me anyway, even though she's a much better poet than I am. Because uh, I'm not a poet. 
Uh, and so, so yeah, we, 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 that day we, we ended up walking for a long time and we kissed on this, a swing and it was very sweet and nice. And 10 years later, she still is with me. So this story doesn't really have an end. Uh, hopefully it never will. And, and, uh, yeah. When you tell somebody your truth, you have to also look at that truth, examine it, see how it might look to somebody else, challenge your own preconceptions about the truth. Because when you put it in front of other people, then you're suddenly laying yourself open to them saying, I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. I think you could have done this. I think you could have done that. That's not what happened. I was there. Nothing like that. What the hell are you talking about? I'll be reevaluating where my strengths and probably more importantly, where my, my weaknesses and my flaws have come from. That's my personal journey. One of the things I hope to personally get out of this. And I'm going to get better. I'm going to be getting to know myself better through you. And hopefully by listening to that process and uh, hearing my my stories about my life, you'll get you something know those... from that too. So that was the second story that I ever told on the Spark London stage and something that definitely does come across to me listening back to these early stories is that I am so much more comfortable on stage now and I tell much better true stories now having done it many many times and when I tell that story now I tell it very differently it's very much framed around me uh, being a dick in the story it's much more kind of critical of my behavior back then and frames it much more within a kind of analysis of masculinity and how that affects young people growing up and how that affected me growing up you'll get you something know those from that too occasional stories of successful internet dating when two people got together through the internet and it worked well that was the way my last band was formed i stuck a ad up a post up on gumtree and everybody that became part of that band pretty much came through through that post. At the height of the band, there were 17 members in it, so I met a lot of people, and it worked for a lot of them, for at least some of the time, sometime. I think everybody that was in that band, Apples for Everyone, um, pretty much left with something. It was an interesting experience. Watching you push me out again somewhere you're standing In the rain and you are not, 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 not talking To anybody but the drops But the water always listen to you It lasted for about four and a half years, maybe five And my original idea was to form a big band uh, I described it as a, a band big enough to start its own movement Or, or something like that um, and, and I guess that original description was like a, an internet filter. It, it, it managed to bring a lot of like-minded people together and uh, it put off people who didn't, didn't feel that way. Now, despite the band having separated, I am still good friends with, with lots of them. 
uh, and many of them I still collaborate with now or will be doing so in the future. Despite the band ending, our music has been left like a, a time capsule or uh, a statue um, with our highlights echoing through the digital space after we've gone. Um, you can find it actually at MySpace slash Apple Australia. Time capture element of the internet is nice, or at least I like it. I like the way that it leaves the past of you out there like the rings of a tree. It can, of course, mean that all your mistakes are left there forever. You can never really delete anything that you put on the internet. It remains there, whatever you do. I recently had a a debate with someone from a, a music project that I used to used to be involved in about whether we should remove our back catalogues sort of open coffin I guess he might have thought of it from the from the internet to me it, it's it's a, a, a kind of perfect memory without me having to remember it of what we did and it's something that that people can find and they might like and they might enjoy but but to him it's like having something that's dead up there on the internet. Because he feels when a project's finished, it should be forgotten. He has a, a scorched earth policy to his past, uh, to our past when we work together. He, he feels that the new music is what he should be judged on, and he cares only about what's going on at that moment. And I can see where he's coming from. It's not how I, it's not how I feel. I don't see the point in making art if you don't expose it to the audience. It's the finished product I like. That's what the internet offers to the unsigned musician. A chance to display their finished product. A way to find an audience. A way to make their art real and not just an idea. If I write a screenplay, well, there's no point in me doing that because it won't get produced. If I make a podcast, it's there, it's done. I've done it, no one's stopped me from doing it. It'll find an audience or it won't. The problem is that it's much, much harder to find an audience online. All the hype makes it sound easy, like the way that the American dream is sold. Anyone can make it in cyberspace. The reality is, it's really hard to find an audience. If you're successful, and really, personally, I'm yet to find the right formula, but if you're successful, it will involve a lot of time and a lot of effort, and possibly also some money. If you don't have a, a, a name like Radiohead, or a, a label backing you, or, or, or whatever you need, whatever it is, then it's very, very hard to reach a wider audience than your friends. The current band I'm setting up is aimed to be a podcast and a YouTube band uh, to only uh, perform online. Uh, and to release all of our stuff for free um, and try and find an audience and then see what we can do to make some money out of it and uh, do something about it. The one thing that doing it that way offers me for definite is a chance not to get ripped off and to not have my friends be ripped off by promoters, 
by playing expensive London nights where you, the audiences who are your friends because they're the only people who know you who are coming to see you have to pay a lot of money to get in and see you and a load of bands that are nothing like you and maybe are pretty rubbish. You don't get paid. If you don't play well, then you have massive guilt because your friends have all paid money to get in. And if you do play well, then you sort of think, well, great, but nobody else is really listening. They're all here to see their mates' bands and then they're going out in between for cigarettes. So the internet means I can connect with people who like me maybe just my friends, hopefully more people than that, hopefully it all build and build and build. But I'm not ripping them off. I'm not being ripped off. I can present it the way that I want. Getting an audience, finding fans, going viral, that will still involve a hell of a lot of work and a hell of a lot of luck. And that's what musicians should definitely know. The internet is not the easy option, it's just a different option. It's quite funny now to hear myself talking about these online graveyards, these time capsules of my music projects, and me giving MySpace URLs. Since then, the places that the music projects exist online has changed. They're no longer on MySpace, because MySpace pretty much, they're now on SoundCloud, which currently exists, although who knows in the future if that will be the case. But you can find Apples for Everyone over on SoundCloud, you can also find The Middle Class Bastards, which was the second music project that I was talking about on SoundCloud. And the band that I was starting, that I talked very excitedly about starting all those years ago, never really happened. I tried it in a few different ways. Those ways never really came to a kind of fruition that I was happy with. These days, I occasionally write songs for myself and I do want to do more music projects going forwards but for the last few years music has very much been on a back burner in my life and I long for uh, the days when I can take it off that back burner and put it straight on the front hob and cook up something tasty and musical and hopefully that will happen in the future but we'll see. When I was 11 I invented something amazing. I discovered something that nobody else in the whole world had ever known. I discovered it late at night, lying in bed. I found that my body could do this amazing, amazing thing. And I couldn't wait. Uh, till the next day to, t- to tell everybody else about it. So I, I, I gathered around a, a group of young men uh, the same age as me and I said to them I've discovered this amazing thing I call it simulated sex and I described what I've been doing which was rubbing myself until I achieved orgasm and uh they said uh yeah that's 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 wanking 
Everyone knows about that. And I realised I hadn't invented simulated sex. I just discovered masturbation. I mean, I, I still love the fact, I loved that day, that night, when I thought I had discovered something amazing, that I was the first person in the world who had done this amazing, amazing thing. And it just seemed so simple, so perfect. You want to feel good, you want to feel something amazing, then you just do this thing and it's amazing. And it was amazing then. It was a completely unambiguous, gratifying act. As I've got older... Masturbation has become a less pure experience for me. It's been complicated by, you know, guilts and worries and stuff like that that have no place being in the life of someone who had no kind of Catholic or strong religious upbringing at all. But they they, they got in there somewhere through society. And also, I guess, because it's, you know masturbation is great but then you go to the next level and you have sex and then masturbation is not as good I mean as a teenager I was an incredibly obsessive masturbator for some time when I was older sort of I guess 14, 15 you know I would do it till till it hurt and I think most, most men do that probably I mean you get to this kind of Wow, I can do it. Let's just see how many times I can do it. But, I mean, it is true. Um, talking to other men and other people, I, I do do think I probably have a, have quite a high libido, for better or for worse. But then it didn't have all of these complicated adult concepts that I've just been talking about. Then it was just this pure moment of Eureka. It was proper, proper amazing. Again, that story and most of this episode really is about me coming to terms with elements around masculinity and performing masculinity and being socialised as a man within the world that we live in a lot of the stories that i tell in this i haven't really wrestled with i do come over the next six years to understand the stories to understand myself within those stories how ideology is working around and within me within those stories and i think that including them in this episode designing this episode as i did then meant that i was starting to try and pry these things, to try and look at these things that get inside you, take them out into the open and have a look at them. I tell that inventing masturbation story in my hour-long solo show about masculinity and I do it in a different way than I do it here. And the same goes for the last true story that you'll hear near the end of this episode, which was my first story ever on the Spark London stage and has become a really important part of my solo show and my understanding of my childhood and myself and what it means or doesn't mean to be a man. Another thing that I hadn't really conceived of, I hadn't even 
begun to think about properly when I made this episode was this binary idea of gender and men and women being in itself the problem. Very much in the early days of getting better acquainted, at least for the first couple of years, I didn't call myself a feminist. And I also was very negative around the idea of men. I was very kind of anti-men. And this binary idea of gender and sex is something that I think is a real problem and something that I was programmed to believe in and has caused me a lot of pain and a lot of difficulties within my life. And I think that's the case for most of us swimming in this swimming pool of gender. We're all kind of drowning in the unreality of this water that we're forced to swim in that isn't really representative of who we are and how we feel. In fact, many of the statements I make in this episode coming from the me in 2011 didn't acknowledge gender binary at all talked about men rather than cis men and I think that you will hear in the next story also talked about women and about sex with a certain kind of entitlement laced within it which is hard for me to listen back to now so I hope it's not too hard for you to listen back to. The story that comes up next is a story that I wrote much earlier than 2011. I wrote it back when I was in Lancaster, so probably kind of 2002, 2003, maybe 2004. And I remember picking it at the time because I liked the story because it has a kind of rawness and a kind of straightforwardness. Like I take one position and I don't uh, complicate and explore and analyse and look at myself. I just live the experience and feel the experience in the piece of writing. And when I performed it, it's one of my favourite performances within this episode, although all of my performances within this episode are not ones that I would feel comfortable putting out. Now, this next story is, is one of the ones that I like the best, and that's because it has a kind of authenticity to it. But conversely, that authenticity is something that troubles me because it's something that I felt or could feel or could manufacture to feel within that piece of writing. A piece of writing that was influenced by male writers telling truths and being truthful and authentic in their voices, which in itself is a kind of performed masculinity that I now am very cautious around. But I do also think that there is a truth as well as a lie within this next story. But you can judge for yourself. This story and all of the stories within this episode really all take place before I moved to Cardiff because Cardiff was a, an episode that comes up later, a Cardiff special. And so I kept my Cardiff teenage years stories for that episode. And so it doesn't really touch on the bullying that I experienced after 12. Uh, all of the stories about kind of sex and school here are from the point of view of a boy that didn't stick out. I wasn't an outcast in ways that I would be later. And a lot of the bitterness, I think, from being an outcast within school coloured in many ways the framing of this story about when I was 12. But also it kind of shows that even before I was bullied for not fitting the criteria of being a man, being a boy, being masculine within this culture, I was already being affected by the messages that young boys receive around sex 
and around entitlement and around how we should look and how we should be and what counts as power within our society like strength and violence are considered more powerful than kindness and compassion and there have been times in my life definitely when I was 12 where I've subscribed more to society's idea of power than my own idea of what being powerful is in fact I'm not even I'm suspicious completely of the concept of power. I'm against kind of hierarchies in my politics. I don't like the idea of power. And part of it comes from being attracted to power, but not being able to obtain it. A story that I wrote in Lancaster about seven years ago. Stone bins and jealousy. John Cole was a bastard. As an adult, I may have to admit that he was simply a human being created from society and circumstance, with his own hopes and fears and insecurities. I might think somewhere deep inside of him was a lost little boy. But I didn't know him as an adult. I knew him at a time in my life when the school I went to was the whole universe, and I wasn't even aware that there was anyone in the world who suffered the agonies that I did. I knew him as his first year boy at a secondary school and that is a time of life that really makes clear to you who the bastards are and who they are not and he was a fucking bastard the thing I remember about him is he had the body of a toned 18 year old stud at the age of 11 He would strut around the boys' changing room, absolutely unashamed of his body. We would all be holding towels around ourselves, and he would be striding about with his massive knob thrust out, nestled as it was by a massive, wiry expanse of pubic hair. We were hairless or bum-fluffy, and he was a man. I dreamt of the day that my knob might resemble his, even just a little bit. Of course... He didn't just swagger about in there. He punched you as hard as fuck if you looked at the dick that he practically shoved in your face. His reason for punching you was that if you looked at his knob, you must be gay. And the reason that you didn't punch him back was that he was the hardest cunt in the year. He was already a petty criminal and he knew some properly hard cunts, not school hard, adult hard. That and getting in a fight naked in the showers is not the way to disprove gayness. I was annoyed that the fact that I wasn't homophobic didn't stop me from getting punched. I was also annoyed that I got punched a lot. Having no glasses on in the showers, I was often squinting. And to John, squinting was a sign of homosexuality. And this annoyed me all the more, because I was one of the only people there who couldn't see his fucking knob, because I didn't have my glasses on. The lasting... Polaroid quality images I do have of it all come from me sneaking glances when I had my glasses on for fuck's sake and he never noticed me then. I remember seeing him fight someone once and it was fucking brutal. It was proper nasty shit like nothing I had ever done or had ever been done to me. Most fights I have been involved with had worked up to one nasty event and then stopped around there. Like when I was battered in the tennis courts and one of the three Kieran's the hardest one, held me up off the ground and punched me in the stomach and chucked me on the floor. Even since watching John Cole fight, I've only ever seen violence like that 
firsthand once watching another school fight between two properly hard men slash boys. I'd seen violence like it on TV whenever I'd accidentally caught a boxing match, but never seen it live. It was fucking fascinating, really scary and powerful. He was a nasty bastard, but he had blonde hair. I'd never met a nasty bastard with blonde hair till him. He was a real pretty boy, but bad. He-Man's face, Brad Pitt's body, Mike Tyson's fist and Hannibal Lecter's soul. He was destined to be expelled and he fulfilled that destiny with style and panache. He was the kid you would never want to have to teach. He was the kid you'd wish you'd never birthed when you finally realised he was the nasty bastard. And before that, he would be the apple of your eye. The nice girls all fancied him. This surprised me. As I thought that though the nice girls would obviously never fancy me, they would at least fancy people who were good-looking versions of me. You know, sensitive, interesting people who cared about them for who they were or whatever. This was the kind of boy-man they acted like they wanted. But then that cunt would come into the room and they would hang on his every word. If he had beaten the shit out of someone, they would say how bad it was. But their voices wouldn't sound disgusted. They were excited. Yearning almost. They yearned for him to want them. And I yearned to have his knob. He brought out the yearning in everyone. We all probably secretly yearned for him to hit us just so we could get some kind of contact with his powerful and commanding existence. But then one day... I realised he wasn't a powerful god of mayhem. He was just as likely to be clumsy as me. He just hid it well. Anybody could fall flat on their face at any time. Someone had ripped up one of the stone rubbish bins right out of the concrete. More than that, they'd managed to drag or lift the bin across to the pond and hurl it in. It lay there, side on, forming an island of rock in the weeds. It was close enough to the edge to be close, but far enough away to not be easily reachable. Because of this, it took weeks for the school to remove it. It must have been more than one person that did the ripping and the moving, but at the time and ever since, I've had an overwhelming image of John Cole ripping the thing up with one arm, casually, smoking a cigarette at the same time and then lazily throwing it higher and faster than giant Scotsman toss cabers, and then smiling in satisfaction as it crashed into the pond. There was horseplay and bragging. I'm lapping it up, standing beside the water's edge, looking out at the bin, the small stones embedded into it making it look like some kind of tortoise. It was a solid thing. If you didn't know better... You'd think it had always been there. It was close enough to jump onto. I looked around at all the girls, sensing in their faces the admiration they would give me if I was to casually jump over onto the bin and then jump back. A crowd had gathered by now, and I realised I'd said something about how it would be easy to jump it. I'd sealed my bloody fate now. I couldn't talk it up and then not follow through. I'd go from the centre of attention to the centre of derision. I braced myself for the leap, looked at one of the girls, gave her a cocky wink and then launched myself out across the water. I felt the air 
wrap itself around my body, whistling across the hairs on my arms. The world slowed down, and I saw myself from the outside in extreme slow motion. I flew over the sunlight-reflecting surface of the pool. I felt a sudden hard surface smack into my feet. The muscles in my legs seemed to explode into themselves. I grasped the air with my hands, frantically trying to balance. I swayed dangerously, and then I was standing on the bin in the middle of the pond. Everyone had stopped what they were doing and were looking at me. I was king of the school. I had proved that none of this shit meant anything. Homework, grades, GCSEs, algebra, it was meaningless. All there was was power, was grace, was bravery. Those were the things in life that meant anything. I turned around and looked back towards the crowd of people on the bank. I bowed and laughed and whooped. I jumped back onto dry land again, this time effortlessly, as if it was nothing more than taking a step. I jumped back onto the bin again. I was fucking it. I was fucking it. I jumped up and down on the bin. Everyone was clapping and cheering. Then the bin started to roll under my feet. It was spinning round and I was like a hamster on a wheel or a middle-aged woman on a running machine. I was fighting to keep my dignity, to keep myself from looking like the dick I suddenly felt I was. I I could have left it with one jump. I I could have left them wanting more. Why didn't I leave them wanting more? A kind of mix between a crunch and a splash happens. My legs are surrounded by cold, lapping water. My feet are tangled in weeds. I look up and the crowd are all laughing. I think of all the other times I have fallen in the water. How there's always a bloody crowd around to laugh at me. How the water's always cold. Never warm. A teacher has pushed their way to the front and is yelling at me, going on and on about how typical this is of me. Which was exactly what I was thinking. I don't cry or look embarrassed, even though that's how I feel. Instead, I crease my lips into a cocky grin and stare at them all. Getting the crowd on my side. This wasn't a mistake, but a joke. They aren't laughing at me, they're laughing with me. They are mine. They are eating seed from the palms of my hands. Cole! Get out of the water now! Stop grandstanding and get up here! The teacher yells. I blink and realise I am sitting on the cold concrete of the steps, watching John Cole slush his way out of the water. His grin is cocky as fuck and he still manages to swagger even when he's up to his knees in fucking pond water. I thought it was all happening to me, but it wasn't. I was the nobody still. Just another invisible kid with glasses and no pubes. It's funny that I remember it all as if I was John, rather than that I was watching John. I'm not sure that when I was watching it, I did imagine I was him. I think I just watched him do it. I think that the whole realisation that I wasn't the one it happened to is just an implanted memory created by my own confused psyche. What I do know for definite is that the reaction everyone gave the cunt when he fell in the pond was 100% better than the one I got when I fell in. He got respect 
and the rest of the day off. I just got the rest of the day off. The two incidents happened within a month of each other. I was the one who fell in first. He was just the sequel. But it turned out that I was Terminator 1 and he was Terminator 2. And hardly any fucker understands that you couldn't have had T2 without the Terminator. They just remember that T1 was pretty cheesy. I was just the background. The filler. John Cole was the fucking star. And I don't even think that I feel as angry about John Cole now as I did then. Like, I think I would be much more forgiving, really, of the circumstances that create John Cole's. That John Cole himself was a victim in many ways of masculinity, of how that teaches people to behave. And I also think now, looking back, it's unlikely that John Cole had a very positive life after school and that there are certain class dynamics to an assessment of John Cole who was you know a working class person or from a a a background where there wasn't very much money at least and so there are some interesting kind of complexities some nuances around that story I knew that when I released this like I I thought in a way some of the value in the story was that for once I wasn't trying to look at the nuances that I was just trying to tell an experience a story a version of events that chimed with my own the me in 2011 who was kind of looking back at me from the past and appreciating and wanting to show that person from the past is now a person who I am not anymore and talking about writing the next part of this podcast addresses the idea of being a writer and it's interesting for me to hear now because now I mean I am a writer I've been a writer all my life that I can remember but now I'm really not known for writing what I'm known for where I'm known is for truth true storytelling generally speaking, is for getting up and talking about my life experience on stage, both in kind of short, spark, the moth style stories, and in longer true storytelling type pieces, or maybe doing lectures or talks about myself or about ideas, speeches, that kind of thing. Fiction is generally speaking not something that people think of me as doing now just as many people probably don't think of me as writing songs now Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I started doing a a drama podcast a fiction podcast uh, last year why I wanted to spin off from getting better acquainted and explore stories and ideas and performance because that's what I always was about and in many ways doing getting better acquainted and doing spark and doing my solo storytelling show about masculinity have boxed me into boxes that I I never used to think of myself as being within. So now the same ethical issues come up in my work for sure as I was talking about in this next piece. But from the outside people think of me as a podcaster, as a true storyteller. As a promoter, even, ironically, for some of the comments I was making about promotion in terms of the music uh, scene that I'd experienced, now I'm often seen as a promoter, somebody who produces other people's nights, people, someone who puts on other people's work. 
and curates that and promotes it and showcases it that is a part of what I am but it's not who I feel like inside of normally inside I just feel like someone who has ideas and creates things out of those ideas and sometimes they're fiction and sometimes they're true story and if they're fiction they hopefully have truths within them and when they're non-fiction they're definitely full of fiction all of the true stories contained within this episode have details which may be wrong may be different like the times in the story of me and Jen getting together that I played at the beginning since I told that story on stage and Jen heard it back she thinks that it was earlier it was 8 30 in the morning when we turned up to a seminar together and that it was even earlier than that 7 30 or something when I phoned her the next day after getting her number off her in the club like so many things are different and like we heard in my imagination in my retelling of seeing John Cole jumping onto a stone bin memory can be deceiving it can implant itself it can make me think I did that thing that I saw and definitely when I think about my memories generally speaking I think it's very interesting that whilst I may make my living in some respects as much as I do from telling true stories that all of my memories are mediated by my mind that I remember most of my past from outside my body I see it often in tracking camera shots. I see myself from the outside looking down or from another point in the room seeing the scene unfold. And so none of those memories are true. And so all of my true storytelling, or at least most of it, comes from something that isn't true as much as it comes from something that is true. One thing I want to touch on really is the nature of being a writer. And I don't want to be all uh, pretentious about this and suggest that, you know, I'm somehow different or special or even that I'm a good writer. I'm not saying that. But being a writer, it does mean looking at the world as material. My life and my experiences and the people I meet are inevitably always possible material for things that I might write or make because I don't just write things, I make things like podcasts or I write songs. And this is something I kind of feel very ambivalent about, have a lot of guilt about, I worry about a lot. Um, Certainly I am a very absorbent person. Whatever I'm reading, whatever I'm obsessed with, whatever I'm interested in comes out in my writing um, and my life experiences all come out in my writing. And I think this makes, this makes me worried about the kind of person I am to be friends with or to know. Uh, I don't want people to be worried that I'm going to misuse their lives in my work. And I know that sometimes my friends have worried this. I hope that it is something that I have always done correctly, that it's a line that I have always trodden well, but I I can't guarantee that that is the case. I always will remember an occasion where I went to visit a friend who was having a very 
a difficult experience and I went to visit her because I love her and wanted to, to be of help to her and when we were when I was waiting in the queue uh, for a bank for my friend, a different friend her husband to uh, to I think he was do, he was getting some money out or something and he was in a queue and it was a long queue and I I didn't want to wait and I I went to the side of the bank and I I knelt down against the window and I had my notepad <laughs> and uh, I was scribbling down a lot of writing in that notepad. Um, what I was writing was actually about micropayments, the internet system uh, for payment. Uh, where you click, you pay per page in small amounts, uh, and that was for a blog that I wrote at the time. But he saw me writing in a notepad, and I knew when he came up to me that he thought I was using his wife's experiences, that I was only there to get a story and I made it clear I said I'm writing about micro payments and he said good and I'm probably being paranoid he probably didn't mean it in that way he was under a lot of pressure he wasn't worrying about me he wasn't thinking about me he was thinking about other things but I always will remember that moment a feeling of utter shame and I guess if I'm any kind of a writer, I'm a, a method writer. I, When I was younger, I had a big thing about life experience. and I was always trying to get as many experiences as possible without hurting anyone. That was the proviso. And uh, I would do anything because it would be an interesting experience. I mean, within reason. Obviously, I wouldn't end up taking heroin or something because you can't come back from that. But uh, I was interested in getting as many experiences as uh, possible. And as I've got older, there's still that element to what I do, although it's much more ambiguous and complicated to see life that way. There are, there are more responsibilities, there are more things that get in the way of, of, of embracing every experience and seeing where it will take me. And I'm a method writer, yeah, uh, but I don't want to just be a writer. I'm also a person and I, I don't want to hurt my friends. I don't want to use them. Uh, generally, I fictionalise everything. A friend of mine, Zoe, who's in one of the podcasts, once said to me, there was a, a piece of writing that I wrote where um, I used some details about her life or some elements of her in a couple of different characters. And she said when she read it, it didn't upset her. She knew that I wasn't just using her. I was mixing her with some other people and I was creating something new. And I hope that that's how people will always feel when they will see things that are connected to their them. And that's okay for fiction. You can draw that line with fiction. You can make composite characters. I think it's always important to make composite characters so that you're never locking somebody's life down into something that makes it smaller than what it is. And at the same time, with my really personal experiences, things that have happened to me, my childhood, those I do think are fair game. And I will use them and do use them but 
when it comes to autobiography for some of the pieces that are going to be in this episode it's a more complicated area to be going into I think it's always very important to empathize with people and to try and see why they might behave the way they are and also to make it very clear that it's it's only your opinion it's only your interpretation you are I don't know what happened in my childhood I only know how I felt at the time and how I feel looking back what I think happened it's not truth it's my truth when I was a teenager I wrote a play called Blood of the Lamb about my family life at the time uh, and that was it, that was autobiography passing as fiction and I gave it to all of the family members who were involved in my childhood to read and they read it and that had some kind of therapeutic response uh my stepdad apologized to me for the strange world that we'd inhabited together for the way he'd behaved at very stressful times in his life and in everybody around his around us his lives he apologized to me and i accepted that apology and i i think it was a very big thing for him to do a very uh kind and uh good thing for him to do and my mum and me also had a, a a very frank and complicated discussion around that time about that play uh she felt that i betrayed her as the bad person and i didn't feel that i had maybe she was right maybe that's how she came across but if she did come across in that way i that was a failure in me as a writer and i was only young so i mean you know fair enough but uh it wasn't my intention all these years since that time when my friend thought i was writing about his wife i've always felt incredibly sensitive and worried and guilty about that and that moment comes back again and again and lots of moments like that come back to me again and again i always obsess about small things that i've said or that people have said to me that make me feel like i did something morally wrong i don't know why i do this for example i'm always obsessing over this time when i went back to visit my drama teacher who changed my life in many ways i'd love to get him on the show actually if he's listening um and i went back to visit him a few years after i'd finished school because me and my friend would go back to to school after after we were in university and uh, to visit to visit our our teacher he was telling me something about theater and i told him something else about theater i don't remember i jokingly said now the pupil has become the master and he said something like you know that's how it should be but i wish i could destroy that sentence the arrogance of it the inaccuracy of it the brashness of it I, i just don't know why i said that and if i could go back and remove that if i could get a a power tool and destroy it like one of those electronic sander sanders if i could just erase that sentence from existence i really dearly would and 
I mean, I do obsess. I'm sure everybody does about these these little things that were said or I said. There was a time a friend of mine said to me that I wasn't as uh, interesting and exciting and vibrant as I had been when we were younger. And, I mean, that made me cry for quite a few days when I thought about it. And it still makes me feel bad now. And he, he didn't even mean anything by it. I mean, that's the thing about these sentences. I, I've, I've come to discover that over the years, things I've said or things that people have said to me, they've only really stuck with me. They've only really lodged there like a, like a, like a, a thing that I keep coming back to uh, over and over again. Um, it's only happened for me. I'm the one that's taken that, that little thing and engraved it into, into my, my psyche or whatever. For the other people, uh, it wasn't really wasn't really very much this is definitely a, a moment where I feel much more kind of affection for my past self than most of the parts of this episode there I am doing what I do now which is wrestling constantly with ethical questions about making art and what is truth and what I should do and how I should do it and it's really ironic to me that I didn't know that I was someone with anxiety when I'm describing becoming obsessed with a tiny little thing and not being able to let it go not being able to let it go and not being able to let it go and having it be something that keeps you up awake at night even ages after it was a thing if it ever was a thing so it's quite sweet to me to hear my my past self kind of unawarely being self-aware. <laughs> the next piece that you're going to hear is literally the first story that I ever told at Spark. Like, I didn't really know why I chose this story to tell. I thought at the time I was just choosing it to fit the theme and the theme of that night was mistaken identity. And I'd been looking for a story to tell at Spark. My friend Matt was involved with Spark London and he kept telling me to come and tell a true story and I was like, I'm a writer, I'm not a storyteller. I don't know how to stand up on stage without notes. In fact, when I did the story that you're here, I did have notes. I had a, a clipboard with bullet points of, of what I was going to say uh, written down on it and I think my story was worse because of the fact that I had notes. Like now I, I truly understand that it's, it is better to, to get rid of notes. You connect with an audience better even if you stumble. And I stumbled loads anyway, so I might as well not have the notes. This was the first story I told at Spark. We had a rehearsal for it before I told it. And during that rehearsal, Joanna Yates, who runs Spark, who is now someone I've been working with for a number of years, but then was kind of an acquaintance, someone I vaguely knew through Matt, who I knew was in charge of Spark and was kind of, I was in awe of her. She asked me why I chose that story. And I told her it was just because it fitted the theme and she wasn't convinced and uh, the other people in the room weren't convinced and now looking back I'm also not convinced it seems to me that this was a story bubbling up in my life that I've wanted to tell for years and years and years like I'd included it in the play that I wrote when I was a teenager about my childhood I'd included it in many other forms in my work over the years and it's one of a few really well furrowed well-traveled childhood traumas that I keep going back to and have kind of gone back to in my work since then and and I think reduced the power that those moments have over me 
by retelling them, reframing them, telling them in my own way and finding out the whys or some of the whys or some potential whys to why these traumas happened to me and and why the people involved in those experiences did the things that they did. Clearly, when I'm telling this story and in the postscript afterwards, I am trying to make sense of those things. I don't think I tell this story narratively very well. When I tell this story now, I tell it very differently, more narratively satisfying. But I don't think that true storytelling is just about narrative. It's also about character. And I guess that was one of the things that I learned from doing that story, that you could be up on stage and anxious and a bit weird and people would relate to that in ways that I never had expected that they would. One of the things I do feel bad about, and it's been addressed on Getting Better Acquainted uh, over the seasons as they've gone on, is that in this story, I think I was very negative, unnecessarily, unfairly negative about the city of Coventry. I know it's upset some of the people I knew from Coventry slightly, not in a big way, but they didn't like to hear their city described in such kind of, it's callous as much as anything else, such a callous way, looking for laughs that I didn't even get. So I apologise once again to the city of Coventry, um, although still a little part of myself blames you for the traumas of my childhood. I fully accept that it was not the city of Coventry that caused me to have such negative views of that city. All the presents had been put round the tree and uh, my family were gathered in the front room and I had the job of uh, giving out all the presents. And I was, I was excited and I was really happy. Um, I was about 10 and I was living in Coventry. Now I don't know if any of you have ever been to Coventry. I, I hope for your sakes that you haven't. Um, Coventry is a, a very grey and depressing place in the Midlands. Um, and I always think about that, um, that Betjeman poem about happy bombs falling on slough. I always think that, that should, should that, for me, that, that applies to Coventry. But then, ironically, a lot of uh, bombs that weren't very friendly uh, uh, did land on Coventry. And uh, that's probably why it's such a state. Um, it's a kind of mixture of, uh, of empty empty newness and depressing industrial oldness and the only nice things in Coventry are uh, the old cathedral and the new cathedral that are by each other Um, the old cathedral was destroyed um, by bombs and the new cathedral was built as a result of this and it's sort of you've got hope and you've got despair you've got old you've got new and, and and that's that's what that's all about and that's what this story is all about, these, these, these two different cathedrals um, in my life, I guess. Um, so my life in Coventry was very much like that. It was, it was um, two strands, good and bad, um, and uh, happy and, and, and not happy. Um, and <laughs> that's um, when, I, when, I was, when I was in the week, I would be um, with my mum and it was very unhappy and at, at the weekends, I would be um, in my, my dad's house in this, in this very depressing tower block in, in an industrial wasteland. Um, but inside the top of that, that tower block was this, this, this little flat where um, I would have the best weekends uh, of my life. Um, so I'm giving out the presents, getting back to that. And 
this is at my mum's house. Um, and I'm giving out the presents and, and, and I'm full of energy. I'm full of in, enthusiasm. And as you can see, I'm still quite full of energy and enthusiasm. Um, when I was a kid, I ran everywhere and I talked all the time. Um, but I still uh, move quite fast and I, I still talk all the time. Um, but I do it in a different way now, uh, partly because of this story. Um, and then it was kind of innocent. Now it's kind of neurotic. Um, now, my mum has a saying about me that she, she still occasionally uh, brings out. Um, that um, I was uh, a lovely child till I was five. And after that, it was all downhill. Um, and she says the same th- similar thing about my brother. But she says he was, he was a terrible child till he was five. And then he was brilliant after that. He's my older brother. And I love him very much. Uh, it's not his fault. Um, and, and so I, there I am and I'm, I'm, I'm jollying up the day because it wasn't nice in that house at the time and it was Christmas day, it was supposed to be happy, the family's all there, so I'm, I'm trying to make everything smooth and, 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 and nice and, and, and that house at that time, every night there's rows in the, in the room next to my sister and to me. Uh, my stepdad and my mum rowing, arguing, shouting all the time. Um, and the nights were just spent holding my little sister who was just crying every night and it, trying to make her feel better and make her feel safe. Um, but then that's the in the daytime, uh, my days were spent um arguing with my little sister <laughs> who uh, would use her stepdad, my, her dad, my stepdad as a kind of weapon to hit me um, because if she told him that I wasn't playing with her, he would hit me. Um, and um, so my stepdad, uh, he's a, a guy, he's a working class guy originally from, from Northern Ireland and his dad hit him, seriously hit him. And his teachers whacked him with um, a cane. And he turned out very nice. He's actually the, the nicest member of his family. Um, and uh, so, that, but that's what he'd lived through. That's the, the background he'd had. Um, and my mum, she had sort of been many things. She had a very hard childhood, um, but uh, she was kind of a sort of hippie and a sort of feminist. Um, but both of them, when they got to Coventry, something snapped and something just happened. In that city that used to be uh, a war zone, they kind of had their own little war zone where they argued a lot and, uh, and he started hitting me. Um, now, I didn't tell anyone that he hit me. I didn't even tell my mum. I'm sure if I had, uh, she probably would have done something about it. I didn't tell my dad either and I didn't tell my dad because his house was this oasis um and I, I that's where I went at weekends that was all that was nice I didn't want to kind of take this old cathedral and whack it into the new cathedral and 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 at his house uh, on those weekends during this terrible time in my life he he read me the lord of the rings um and the iliad and and and, and he he gave me cooked breakfasts and and toad in the hole and, and 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 all sorts of lovely memories um but this isn't a lovely memory i'm i'm handing out the presents and um i've got to the end of the presents everybody's got their presents now and uh there's no more presents everyone's starting to open their presents i'm not I'm, and, and uh, I see this 
see this present down the, down behind the the Christmas tree, stuck down down behind it. And I I pick it up and I look at it and it says it says Dave. So uh, I open it up and it's a Mars bar. Now not, I don't really like Mars bars. Um, not that happy about this present, but I thank my little sister who it's apparently from. And I say thanks very much, and I and I and I'm try to be as grateful as possible because I want the day to be as happy as possible. And uh, the next thing, my mum is screaming at me. She's shouting and shouting. She's saying I'm greedy. She's saying I'm spoilt. She's saying that I always do this. I'm just there's something just nasty about me. And 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 then she says, and I'm afraid this is the case. It's cliche, but it's what she said. She told me that I had ruined Christmas. And then she stormed out of the room, uh, crying, ran up the stairs. And I can hear her, her feet running up those stairs. And I'm crying and I don't really know what I've done. And I look down at this wrapper in my hand and it says, Dad. And mine is Dave and it says, Dad. So I made a mistake uh, that ruined Christmas. And... Then my, my stepdad took me by the arm um, and he pushed me back into the Christmas tree. Um, he said, you've upset your mother. And, and then he hit me. Postscript. Uh, in the nerves that are created by standing in a room in a spotlight trying to fit one of your worst memories into seven entertaining, engaging minutes. It's really easy to miss bits. Uh, the bit I missed was about my mother and it went like this. During this time, my mum was commuting every workday from Coventry to Birmingham and then back from Birmingham to Coventry. She'd leave really early in the morning and she'd get home pretty late in the evening. And uh, when she got home, she'd have to do the cooking and uh, at the weekends and in the evening, she did all the housework. Uh, My stepdad didn't do any of it. He just read the newspaper. Somehow they'd reverted to these, these strange, straight gender roles. I don't know why. Um, And this exhaustion that my mum must have felt um, getting home so late, having no sleep, doing so much. And the stress that she was going through at work and at home was, I'm sure, a very big part of what caused this situation to happen, what made this story happen, of why she behaved the way she did. Basically, she had reasons, just like my stepdad did. It doesn't excuse them, but it does explain them. One last thing I'd like to add uh, that I don't think comes across because I've having listened to it a few times now is that my little sister was only four years old when this story happened. She, she might have even been younger than that. So you mustn't think and she mustn't think that I hold the way that she could manipulate her dad against her. I don't. She was a child. It wasn't her fault. I have some sympathy and compassion for my previous self. You can hear how worried I am about presenting people unfairly in my work. And it's interesting to me now, years later, having told that story in many different ways, having told the story of the adults in that story, my stepdad and my mum, in a number of different ways since then, having 
talked about the kind of trauma and abuse I now see it as that I experienced in my childhood on Radio 4, on the biggest platform I've ever had. And I talked about those issues and maybe presented the people less sympathetically, although I hope still in a nuanced way. It's funny how you tell a story and you think you're telling something that is both at the same time, everybody has traumas and most people's traumas are worse than mine. So my trauma is nothing and it won't shock anybody. But also thinking that it is remarkable, that it is all that you are, that you're a flawed individual and you're so broken and, and disgusting and wrong that if you share these experiences, everyone are going to see, they're going to see how terrible you are, how bad you are. And you're worrying at the same time about how big the story is as you are worrying about how unimportant the story is and you tell it and the world doesn't end and some people are shocked by it some people connect with it it chimes with a lot of people's personal experiences with their childhoods with their pasts and you realize that actually telling that story gives you some control over it and then you tell it again and again and again until the point where telling that story now has gone back to being unremarkable to me in that it's a story I've told it doesn't have power over me and I can tell it again and I can tell it better and I can tell it in a way that is more useful to helping people like the past me where when I expose myself I do so deliberately and for reasons rather than in this original way of just exposing myself because I needed to exposing myself in that raw way that raw way where I had no control over what was coming out where I wasn't using it in a constructive way where I wasn't accessing it in a safe way one of the things I haven't done is have compassion for myself and as I listen back to this version of me from the past. I am trying to have some compassion for him. I don't agree with his word choices. I don't agree with his editing skills. I don't agree with his feelings, with his thoughts, with his opinions. But I know that they weren't created out of nothing. That he's not fatally flawed that he can get better and even if I don't feel like I am better yet like I still have so much more to do to unpick the things that society has put into me and make choices about how I feel and how I think and and how I look at the world but I also feel like I've I've come a really really long way that I am in a place where I can control myself better, can say the kinds of things that I want to say better. And ultimately, I've learned compassion for other people. And through that, I've learned compassion and empathy for myself, for my past selves and for my current self. And hopefully for my future self too. At this point, I'm going to play the end of the first ever episode, we'll hear what my past self was hoping to achieve. I think he got all of those things that he was hoping for and more and unexpected things, things that I had no idea this show would be about. 
the places that it would take me to, the people it would help me to meet, the opportunities that it would create for me, not just on the show, but in my life in general. I'm still learning to listen better to other people. But I've at least, I think, learnt to start listening better to myself. I know myself better. And I hope that by the 400th episode, by the 500th episode, by the 600th episode of Getting Better Acquainted, I'll know myself better and I'll have got to know a lot of other people even better than I do now. And I hope that you'll be there with me to learn about them vicariously through this show. This podcast is coming out on the back of a few other things that I've been doing before. A podcast project called Four Days in a Room with two of my oldest friends, friends I've known since I was at secondary school. We went to an undisclosed location in Manchester and we recorded ourselves for four days. And that show is still going out now. Uh, It's a weekly show. I think that the outcome of this experiment has been quite varied their series is very different each episode is very different from from the last not all of them are necessarily successful having been the person editing that experiment down into into bite-sized episodic chunks and trying to make those chunks interesting to listeners and interesting to myself I have had to listen to myself talk a lot talk over my friends say stupid things, say things that I don't even agree with in hindsight. And I had to listen to myself interacting with my two oldest friends, which meant that we acted a lot more like we probably did when we were 15. That's not the only truth about me. And I guess I wanted an opportunity to show different versions of myself through this project, to show how I interact differently with different people. Maybe through this project, I'll end up less socially awkward. People think because I talk a lot that I'm not socially awkward. I would say that's not true. Yes, I always can find something to talk about, but I don't always talk about it in the right way to the right people. I always doubt what I say. I'm never never sure how what the other people what other people think of me um i'm constantly constantly paranoid about people taking offense to this thing that i said or that thing that i said so i hope that the process of this this show will teach me to be less socially awkward i've i've done quite a few of the interviews already and i certainly am finding that in everyday conversation i'm much more aware of when i'm speaking and when i'm not speaking and of giving other people the space so hopefully that 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 sort of thing will continue um the other thing i hope to end up with is a greater knowledge of uh of the world around me of the different people that i'm speaking to of their ideas of their thoughts exploring areas that i'm not necessarily interested in initially finding ways to be interested in them finding things about all of the different people i'll be speaking to that i can relate to and that other people can relate to and 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 conversation i mean it makes sense that i'm working in podcasts now um although it's very different from writing and very different from what i've done in the past conversation is is kind of where i live it's where i where i'm at what i what i do all the time and it's a craft that i'm always 
doing, but I've never taken the time to perfect. I've developed as a writer over the years. I've developed as a musician. But I haven't necessarily, until now, hopefully, developed as a conversationalist. I think that this uh, project is kind of has a lot of different strands that will be running through it. There'll be interesting things about family as I interview different members of my family. There'll be interesting things about friendship. There'll be interesting things about the different subjects that people talk about. There'll be different interesting things about the way that people talk, about the way that conversations function. Um, and yeah, it'll be an oral history of a load of people in 2011, what they thought at this moment in time about things that in 10 years' time we can look back on and we can see, did, did we agree with ourselves? Any, do we agree with ourselves anymore? What do we think? And other people can look back on and say, look, that's what they thought at that time. Some of the people I'll be inter interviewing will be uh, are quite old and this might be uh, some of the final recordings that may be there. Uh, of their lives and that is also a very valuable form of uh, social and oral history um, hopefully it's going to be about interesting people and I would say that all people are interesting and one of my jobs should be finding a way in to each person unlocking what is interesting about them you get to judge if I do that or not but certainly, I want to take you with me on that journey. So come on, let's go commit GBA on someone right now. Recorded sound is like that, you know, um, the Beatles are just as relevant now as they no, were. No, you were doing it, Yeah, well, that's right, yes, we went for a walk. I know there are plenty of times when therapy does help. But I think there's a certain value in talking to your friends. Friends, I always think. Friends and family. If this is the first episode of Getting Better Acquainted that you've ever listened to, then don't get used to it being like this. This is very, very atypical. Later this week, there'll be a proper episode of the show, which will be a conversation with somebody that I know. But because it's the 300th episode week, it's going to be with somebody who has been mentioned so many times on the show but has never come on until now you can follow getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can find getting better acquainted on facebook and you can download the podcast from anywhere the podcasts get together on the internet to hang out if you want to help to support the show you can make a donation on the soundcloud page that's where I also put links to things that come up in the show. My solo show is called What About The Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. And if you want to find out more about that, you can check that out at mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. The fiction podcast that I make is called The Family Tree. And if you want to support that, and I really, me and my partner who make it could really do with your support for that because we're making a second season and we need uh, the money to do so so you can sign up to the patreon account to support the family tree but you can also listen to the first series again anywhere that podcasts go on the internet to hang out 
that podcast has its own website as well unlike this one go direct to the source at thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk this has been a rather strange conversation between my current self and my past self to celebrate the 300th episode of getting better acquainted so for now it's time to say goodbye but remember there are lots of ways of getting better acquainted.